Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. My name is Nir Shafir. Frequent listeners to the podcast will know that we cover a whole variety of different topics. We don't just focus on Ottoman history. We have things from uh, the medieval culture of food in Anatolia to contemporary soundscapes of Islamic Berlin. And I bring this up because today we also have a very timely topic. We have a contemporary topic, and that is that 2017 is actually the 50th anniversary, so to speak. It's the 50th year of the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza uh, by Israel, alongside the annexation of the Golan Heights and um, East Jerusalem. And to speak about this, we have a very distinguished colleague and uh, guest, and he is Gershon Shafir. He is actually a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of California, San Diego, and he's the perfect person to write about and speak to about this because he's actually published a book uh, on this topic. It's called A Half Century of Occupation, Israel-Palestine and the World's Most Intractable Conflict. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And I just want our listeners to know, just in case they were wondering, that even though both of us have the same last name, we're both Shafirs, there is no relation between us. There's no nepotism on this podcast. Okay, we are getting into trouble here. <laughs> so I mentioned that, you know, it's been 50 years. I called it an anniversary, but it's, a, it's not something to celebrate in any ways. You know, why it, maybe we just, oh, let's open this topic, why write about the Israeli occupation after 50 years? Because so much of it just seems, in a sense, naturalized. It's been just the way things are in uh, Israel-Palestine for so long that it no longer seems something worth uh, of analysis. So maybe just let's open up with that question. Why this book? Why now? Okay. Well, it is a historic date. Historic, even though tragic date. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the Middle East, we pay a great deal of attention to such anniversaries. It's 100 years to the Balfour Declaration, mm-hmm. 70th anniversary of Israel's establishment. Mm-hmm. And it's very important for these other anniversaries not to overshadow the fact that Israel has been in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights, and outside the perimeters of Gaza now for uh, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, occupations are rare phenomena in the modern world. They have been very common in the Ottoman and other periods. But in the modern era, they are rare. And the 50-year-long occupation is even rarer. And that requires uh, our attention. And uh, when I decided to write this book, I chose to organize it in the form of three essays. Rather than a chronological structure, I chose three essays, and the first one is just what is the occupation, which I guess is what you're asking me about. It is a much more complex phenomenon precisely because it has been around for that long. Mm. Uh, But to anticipate another part of your question, the occupation is transformed. In some ways, it is similar. There is a continuity, but it has also transformed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Mm -hmm. Uh, in particular by creating the conditions for a potential diplomatic solution. But I guess we'll get around to that later. Yes, precisely, yeah. I, I mean, I want to find out more about how it's transformed the conflict itself and also how the mechanisms of uh, settler society, of the occupation, have kind of transformed Israeli society itself uh, amongst its, of course, significant impact on the Palestinian population. In other words, how 
deeply has the occupation occupied Israel itself. Precisely, yeah. But we'll save that for later. Maybe let's just start with this question. I guess I have two questions to begin with. One, one of the things that I found fascinating just opening the book and even just speaking to you uh, in the lead up to this is the fact that there's a large segment of the population, especially here in the United States where we're recording, who deny that the occupation even exists, which to me seemed bizarre because it's, in a sense, it's so naturalized, it's always been around. How How is it that people can even deny this concept? It's, it's uh, not just a, an American uh, form of... Uh, silence or subversion or secrecy mm-hmm. but the Israeli government is very much behind it it argues that this is a contested rather than an occupied territory because it being an occupied territory the occupier Israel in this case has certain obligations it needs to meet the occupation or belligerent occupation is a legal category mm. and this is one of the crucial dimensions of this occupation which also make it different from Israel within the Green Line. Under the Geneva Convention of 1949, the Fourth Geneva Convention, which falls into the larger framework of international humanitarian law, if uh, occupiers have certain kinds of responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, and there are certain characteristics to an occupation. Uh, let me mention some. Uh, the most important one is that occupation cannot lead to annexation. Mm-hmm. You cannot acquire sovereignty over territory that you occupied militarily. Sovereignty uh, lies with the prior owner of the territory, and today with really with the people who live there, you yeah. know, and, and the circumstances uh, and the, the legal doctrine of self-determination. Uh, so occupation, by definition, has to be temporary. And this really is the, que- this raises the question of why an occupation or can an occupation last 50 years? Mm. And uh, can 50 years be uh, viewed as temporary? Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that it's not Professor Shafir who is arguing that it's temporary. International humanitarian law requires it. And the Israeli government used this very legal argument when it appears in front of the Israeli Supreme Court, sitting as a high court of justice, when that court is required to adjudicate certain aspects of Israeli policies in the West Bank. So the the temporariness is a key. Without it, Israel would not be able to be in the occupied Mm. territories. And if it annexed these territories, it would also violate this this set uh, of laws, not to mention the United Nations norm of uh, territorial integrity, a very actually surprisingly successful norm since World War II. Yeah. Just to clarify some things, uh, didn't it annex kind of the Golan Heights and parts of East Jerusalem? Well, uh, Israel uh, extended its municipal boundaries in East Jerusalem right after the 1967 war. Later on, it felt that this actually was not a sufficiently far-reaching or legally sustainable form of uh, control, and they adopted the Jerusalem law. Uh, But guess what? Has anybody recognized that annexation? As far as I know, no. (laughs) Nobody has. Okay, There isn't a single country in the world that has uh, recognized it, with a possible exception maybe of Micronesia. So in this case, international norms uh, are not 
following uh, Israel's annexation. That is very, that is correct. Yes, yes. Of course, another aspect of the international uh, framework here of international humanitarian law, under in this case under Article Forty Nine of the Four Geneva Convention, is that a country cannot move its population into the territory that it has occupied. Mm-hmm. In other words, it cannot colonize it. And of course, colonization. In this case, I would say it's the engine of the occupation. It is an absolutely crucial dimension. So we already talked about the occupation as being a legal category, in this case, as the framework for colonization. Mm -hmm. And there is one other aspect of international humanitarian law which is relevant and provides yet another dimension of the occupation, and that has to do with the recognition of the Geneva Convention of the right of an occupier to protect its um, forces against uh, the occupied population. In other words, again, it's not Professor Shafir who would say that resistance is a non-surprising and a regular aspect of occupation. Mm-hmm. Indigenous people, native people, occupied people will resist, and that is precisely why the Geneva Convention recognizes the right of the occupier to defend its forces because it anticipates that. So resistance is yet a third dimension and uh, of the occupation. We have to co- connect all these three dimensions together to get the complex and um, comprehensive picture of what an occupation is. On that note, let me ask you a question about the nature of colonization because uh, settler colonialism as a project, you know, as described in your own uh, earlier work, is something that began kind of before 67, you know, the occupation is not necessarily a break from the general settler colonial project. So what actually changed in 67? Uh, how did the colonial project shift uh, over the past 50 years compared to between 1948 and 1967 or even before that? It's very easy to emphasize the continuity because it is there. Mm-hmm. Israeli state building is a project of settler colonialism. Okay, Hitya Shavut is... The, the term, Zionists from the very early on used the terminology of colonization. The f- first type of settlement they constructed was called a moshava, which is the Hebrew, the literary Hebrew translation of a colony. And it really set the boundaries of what was to become the state of Israel in, 19, um, in 1948. But there's also a radical change a dramatic change because Zionist colonization uh, during the period of the Yishuv, the Jewish community before the establishment of the state of Israel spread out over areas that were less densely inhabited by Palestinians, the inland valleys and the coastal area. And indeed, after 1967, under the labor movement that was in government under um, Eshkol and under Golda and under Rabin, the attempt was maintained, the the goal was to uh, settle in areas that were less densely inhabited, in particular in the Jordan Valley, Mm -hmm. one of the hottest places on earth and uh, one that did not attract too many Israelis, but that was expected to serve as a military frontier. So the military frontier was the first type of colonization. A radical break took place when Israelis 
in this case religious Zionists, Israelis, began settling in the more densely inhabited parts of the West Bank, especially on the mountaintops of Samaria in, in the northern part of the West Bank, but also in some parts of the Judean hills. Because by settling in between Palestinian villages and towns, they would make the possibility of a contiguous Palestinian state impossible. Mm -hmm. And of course that led to a much higher level of um, confrontation of violence because it would deprive the Palestinians of a political solution that would involve a territorial partition and the creation of a Palestinian state. So this is where there is a very dramatic shift mm. in the character of this colonization, uh, whereas before in 1937, the British proposed the partition plan. The United Nations proposed the partition plan in the Resolution 181 in 1947. This time, settlement in these densely populated Palestinian areas would basically make the possibility of territorial partition unlikely, if not impossible. So on that note, it seems like that it's this actually the settler movement and this uh, settler campaign that kind of distinguishes post-67 from pre-67? Well, uh, let me try and be as specific as I can here. Sure. You know, in English, we use the term settlement. Yeah. Okay. This is a term I immensely dislike because in English, first of all, it would commonly indicates the resolution of some disagreement. We have settled the problem, <laughs> okay? Whereas in the Israeli case, we have created it. Okay. Mm. So I much prefer to stay with the concept that's used, for example, by the French colonization, mm -hmm. you know, colonization, okay, uh, which uh, allows us to put this in the proper historical and the political context and uh, would also explain the bitterness that is surrounding the, uh, the, the project and the resistance to it. Secondly, I also don't like and uh, the the the, uh, common, the 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 noun that we use the, the settlements you know the the plural because for Israelis there are as many types of settlements as <laughs> I would say as for the Inuit right. there are types of snow <laughs> and it's very important to make the distinction because that tells you that this is not a unified project yeah there are different populations with different interests in different regions and therefore it introduces certain kinds of uh, vulnerabilities and weaknesses that leave this project open to reinterpretation and in many ways to potentially being rolled back. Mm. No, I mean, I think that's a good point. Even when I, when I go visit my own relatives in Israel, quite a few of them live in settlements, and those are very different types. You know, there's people that live in Ma'ala Adumim outside in East Jerusalem. There's others that uh, were living in Al-Fem and Asheh, does it much more? It was just exactly. like a suburban extension of Tel Aviv. Very much. So, in addition to the to the military frontier, mm -hmm. which is um, um, along the Jordan River, there is a second column: the religious or early on, one would call them messianic settlements on the mountain tops, and there is yet a third column of settlements, uh, which uh, uh, hug the green uh, the green line. There's the nineteen. 48 ceasefire line on its east side, mm -hmm. and these are suburban settlements. Some of them, again, the, even there, there is a distinction. Some of them are secular, mm -hmm. and there are some that are Haredi, ultra orthodox. 
Then, uh, so these are three types of, of uh, three if not four types of frontier. And then there are the uh, outposts, which uh, are even illegal by Israeli standards because they have not been authorized uh, by the uh, Israeli government. And just to add one more, uh, now there are settlements or settlers from the West Bank who move into Israel and uh, create uh, Torah nuclei settlements within some of the mixed Jewish Arab towns, basically mm. to uh, support the, the takeover by the Jewish population. So they're going into uh, Israel cities with both Jewish and Arab populations within Israel, 1948 boundaries of Israel, and trying to convert or transform those cities yes. uh, in a settlement-like process. Yes, very much so, yes. Yeah. Can you give us one example of those? Because it's just a fascinating new development, one that I think most, maybe most of our <laughs> listeners don't even know about. Yes. So, some of these mixed towns have Jewish population, have not received the kind of um, level of support and development that other uh, uh, old Jewish cities have. Places like Ramla and. Ramla would be one, Lod, this would be two of the best known examples, but also Jaffa, mm-hmm. uh, Akko and others, so uh, they try and enhance the religious uh, commitment of the Jewish population so it would be more willing to stand up or, mm. or uh, basically to enhance the conflict between them and the Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel. Mm. So almost like professional prov- provocateurs of some sort that you know come into. That would be a very good term, yes. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm speaking with Gershon Shafir. Uh, He is a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of California, San Diego. And we are speaking about uh, the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and its 50 long years that it's lasted and the transformations that it has created upon both the conflict itself and Israeli and Palestinian society. Uh, Before this, we were speaking about the many different forms of settlements and settlers, that there isn't just one unified monolithic settle, uh, settler movement, but rather a kind of large process of colonization that draws on, you know, secular settlers, uh, ultra-Orthodox religious, Khalidim, uh, and a whole variety of different people. But I just want to kind of focus on uh, the people that maybe come to mind most often when we think about these settler settlers and their settlements, and that is the ones establishing this kind of military frontier, creating these outposts on the mountaintops often are armed and are constantly expanding and building these larger towns. I mean, how was their start? How did they respond to the post 67 uh, situation and the kind of conquest uh, of these areas of the West Bank and Gaza? One good way to think about the um, Israeli colonization is in terms of generations, Mm -hmm. generations of uh, political generations And the 1967 war awoken and uh, consolidated a religious Zionist generation. Not uh, Uh ultra-Orthodox, 
who are not Zionists per se, but religious Zionists who were the junior partners of the labor settlement movement. Here they saw an opportunity to themselves, and they also had their own uh, existential uh, dilemmas to resolve because they were always viewed, as I mentioned, as junior partners by the settlement movement, but they were not, they were viewed by the more religious uh, counterparts, by the Orthodox, as not being religious enough. Here, by inheriting the land, they could at once become more, more become more, both more patriotic and more religious than anybody else. Mm. And uh, they started, uh, especially after the 1973 war, they engaged in a, they, they created a whole movement called Gushemonim, the Block of the Faithful. Uh, they would go on annual uh, marches in the West Bank, bringing large numbers of people, and they would settle uh, without government permission. Uh, Prime Minister Rabin, during his first time, evacuated them multiple times. But when Menachem Begin, for the first time, a, a, a right-wing revisionist today, Likud government was put in place under him, uh, they embraced this movement. They embraced them, and they helped, uh, helped, them, uh, helped them settle. They also received support from the settlement, from the labor settlement movement. So they received support from many different groups. Mm -hmm. And it is common to point out that these religious settlers did not go by themselves only, but they were commissioned by the rest of Israeli society. I think it is quite rightly... Uh, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to be commissioned by the rest of Israeli society? Meaning that uh, they um, uh, received the support of the... Zion, World Zionist Organization Settlement Division mm. or the Jewish National Fund would provide them with land and so on and so forth. The Ministry of Housing uh, helped construct the, um, the settlements mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Today, however, the situation is very different insofar as they are the spearhead, the cutting edge. They are the ones who drag Israeli society along. Uh, they have made themselves much more independent and uh, they are the most uh, uncompromising component of the Israeli settlement population um, in the West Bank. They are the ones uh, who are least likely to evacuate the West Bank in the context of a potential territorial partition which could lead to uh, the creation of two states in, 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 in a peace, peace accord. So after 73, they kind of, at first they come with a lot of support from uh, the general society, from the government, which is important because, you know, nowadays we have this image of them as a sort of radical splinter, a right-wing splinter from the rest of kind of... Well, they, they went to several stages. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, they, they received much less support at the time. It was only when Begin and okay. the right-wing came to power that they... And it's only then that uh, the government lined up behind them, okay? And it still does. But... Um, uh, today they exert disproportionate influence, but at the same time, you know, they um, they have not been successful in imposing themselves on Israeli society and having the others view them as the natural leaders. There's a great deal of opposition. Mm. Uh, in fact, some people talk about the state of Judea versus the state of Tel Aviv, you know, <laughs> the as the 
two major uh, countervailing forces within Israeli society. So there was some, there was a religious turn in Israel. I would, I should say, it was maybe half a religious or a quarter religious turn. It's not a full turn. Israeli society did not be, be became more religious in some respects, mm -hmm. but uh, it is also a tremendous amount of opposition to the um, settlers and the attempt to make Israeli society as a whole be more religious and attach the future of the state of Israel to the fate of the settlements that they uh, that they live in. So on that note, I mean, how did they try to legitimize the settlements in these places? I mean, what was their, how did they try to sell them to the rest of the society? Uh, there, there are two ways in which they did it. First, they said, well, we are doing exactly what you guys did. We are not the new pioneers, even though they didn't create the agricultural settlements or communal settlements or, or, or uh, collective settlements, but rather kind of... Uh, suburban uh, uh, townships. But in addition, they would invoke those parts of the uh, <laughs> of uh, our religious tradition of the um, uh, Old Testament that have been um, ignored for a long time uh, that speak of the promised land. Mm -hmm. or, uh, and uh, in fact, in many ways, they remind one of the Hamas's view of the West Bank as a religious endowment, as mm. a waqf. So they appeal, appeal to two different kinds, to man's law, so the, to Israeli, right. uh, 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 but also to God's law, you know, which they sometimes would view, uh, some parts, portion of them would view as superior to the Israeli legal system and to Israeli democracy itself. I mean, that's one of the things I found interesting in your book is also just how um, you draw a sort of parallel development of this uh, Gushim and um settler movement alongside the development of Hamas. I mean, how far can we take this parallel, uh, this metaphor? I mean, do you find it useful to kind of see them uh, side by side developing? I think very much so. Uh, though, again, the differences have to be uh, recognized and highlighted. Uh, Hamas also is a generational phenomenon. I mean, there's second generation of the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood that uh, came into their own in the context of the um, First Intifada, uh, where they moved from more um, emphasis on piety to an emphasis on religious uh, confrontation, in fact, of jihad. But they didn't, uh, for the Jewish religious settlers, settlement also became a tool of social mobility. Mm. Uh, settlement is heavily subsidized by the Israeli government. Hamas, of course, didn't receive these subsidies. In fact, it was a source of social welfare services to those Palestinians who didn't have them because there is no Palestinian state to provide uh, mm -hmm. to them. And they have been equally successful in uh, producing a, a partial religious term, okay, due to the uh, again piety and less uh, and and and. The, absence of much lower levels of um, of corruption. But, you know, Palestinians also divided between the state of Gaza and the state of the West Bank. So their success has been um, li remained limited um, uh, as well. But the mo main point is that this, both of these, Gushemunim, today, of course, it doesn't exist anymore. It's, it um, has been replaced by the council for the settlements in Judea and Samaria, and also by um, 
movement, Amana, which runs the settlements and helps construct mm-hmm. some of them, but they are both take a very intransigent position because for them, territorial compromise would violate religious tenets mm-hmm. of a promise, of religious promises to this, uh, to this territory. This seems to be one example of how the occupation has transformed both sides of you know, Israeli and Palestinian society, transformed the conflict itself. I mean, what other long-term effects can we look at of the occupation on the past 50 years of, uh, of Israel-Palestine? Well, the other very significant way in which the occupation uh, affected or transformed the conflict is very different. Uh, for the first time, the, to the Oslo Agreement, opening was made to a diplomatic solution, to a nonviolent solution. Mm. Oslo is predicated on a peaceful resolution of the conflict, and it is fail- its failures are the ones that led to, uh, to the Second Intifada. Uh, and it's very important to keep in mind, this is a, this is a very radical change uh, of a recognition on the leadership of the Palestinian national movement of the legitimacy of the state of Israel. Uh, and, of course, the recognition by Rabin and the Israeli uh, political leadership, uh, at least uh, in his government, of the fact that the, uh, that the um, PLO is a legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Mm. Now, there have been nego- peace negotiations going on for maybe half of the occupation. Mm-hmm. Okay? There have been a peace industry. Uh, there have been a cottage industry, you know, where people will go to different parts of the world and meet and discuss. Uh, as we know, uh, it has collapsed in 2014 under Netanyahu, but there have been several significant steps forward. First one, as I mentioned, the mutual recognition. Mm-hmm. Then a serial series of Israeli withdrawals from the uh, town, large cities of the West Bank. The creation of a Palestinian National Authority. That was the first round. The second is first set of compromises. The second was that was not implemented was under Prime Minister Barak, who um, agreed to a partitioning of um, of Jerusalem between the two sides, and for the first time, he signed on to the establishment of two states as the end end outcome, the final outcome of the Oslo Accord. Finally. The third set of negotiations, the so-called Annapolis negotiations between Prime Minister Olmert and Mahmoud Abbas, he agreed to a Israeli territorial withdrawal to the Green Line. In other words, 100% Israeli withdrawal, however, one that would be accompanied by territorial exchange. So some of the settlements, especially the suburban settlements along the Green Line, would be retained by Israel, which would then give the Palestinian side some four uh, percent of its own territory along the Gaza Strip and in the southern Hebron region. Mm. So you're saying that because of the occupation, it's kind of radically changed the terms of some potential uh, settlement to the long-standing uh, wars that began in '48 and before that. The occupation is the context in which the peace process was born. Mm-hmm. Many other things, settlement, yeah. resistance, but also the peace process. I mean, so on that note, it seems like you're actually pointed to some positive outcomes, so to speak, of the occupation, and since the peace process itself. But 
when we think about uh, Israel-Palestine today, it doesn't seem like the occupation is going to end anytime soon, that this quote-unquote permanent temporariness of the occupation is going to last for the foreseeable future, that things are just going to continue in the horrible situation that they have, especially for the Palestinians. So, I mean, what where does this end in your opinion? I mean, what some people have already given up on the kind of this possibility of the two state solution, uh, which you were just talking about in this uh, contracted uh, peace process. I mean, where, where does it go from here? Well, uh, the, the, the peace process indeed is born out of the, out of the occupation, but also the Israeli recognition of that the, of the first intifadas makes the occupation um, much too costly and very unpopular within Israel. Uh, you know, one can't help but be reminded of uh, Charles Baudelaire's Fleur du Mal poem, Flowers of Evil, uh, though, you know, the analogy that may not work fully. Nevertheless, this is a very complex uh, reality, and that's why I mentioned earlier that we have to look into colonization, to resistance, and to the legal framework to get the complete picture. Now, indeed, there is a fairly widespread consensus today that the two-state solution is dead. And if there's any disagreement, is whether it's, uh, you know, it's in the emergency room or it's in the... Um, the in, the, in the morgue or, the, or maybe even in the cemetery. Now, one of the things I've done in this uh, book, there's too much consensus, and this consensus fits in very well with what the settlers would like us to believe. So I've conducted what I would call a feasibility study. Okay? Mm. This is not a moral judgment. This is a study of the geography, of the demography, and the economics of settlement. So if you look at it, you discover that uh, as of mid-2016, there are about 405,000 Jewish settlers who resided 120 settlements, and they make up, guess what, 13.8% of the region's population. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the Palestinians still maintain a crushing demographic dominance. Even more striking, the annual growth rate of the settler population shows a long-term decline. In the 1990s, it was about 10%. In 2016, it dropped to 3.9%. And more, most damningly, almost 80% of the Jewish population increase in the West Bank comes from natural growth because Israelis no longer wish to move from within the Green Line uh, into, the, uh, into the West Bank. And most of that natural growth itself occurs in just two hurried uh, towns. The built-up built area of the colonies take up 2% of the West Bank. If you calculate the number of settlers that would need to be removed, mostly mm-hmm. religious or religious Zionist settlers, but also the town of Ariel, which is exceptional because it's not along the Green Line, but it sticks like a deep finger into the yeah. heart of the West Bank, you would have to evacuate 27,000 settler households. Okay, This is not a huge a huge number. So the settlement project has not created the conditions for the annexation of the West Bank to Israel, and nor has it made inevitable. At the same time, I'm not playing down the formidable opposition to it, which is a political fact. But the demographic and geographical footprint of mm-hmm. the colonization project is too small, and um, is not likely to change over time. And therefore, it is still feasible to reverse 
to reverse it to a significant extent. I've also offered uh, two additional feasibility studies because those who say that the two-state solution is no longer possible say, well, the only outcome that is likely is a one-state solution. Yeah. But then, if the two-state solution is not possible, you don't have to, stu- you don't have to do a feasibility study on the one-state <laughs> either. Okay. So I've done that. Of course, methodologically, that's much more difficult because we're working with counterfactuals, right. you know, subjunctive conditioners, or what if. And um, it, there are two versions of the one state. One is the so-called binational one, in which two sides recognize each other's national aspirations and come up with a single state in which uh, there is a great deal of internal autonomy given to each side. Uh, this has already been offered by the Jewish community of Palestine by some of its most prominent leaders, um, intellectual leaders, people like uh, Martin Buber or Judah Magnus, who was the president of the Hebrew University. Today, so back in the 1940s. In the, in the, going back 40s. as far as 1925, uh-huh. but lasting really into the 19, mid-1940s. Palestinians at the time were not interested. Jews today are not interested when Palestinians raise the possibility. Okay, Why not? Well, because it's really not a compromise solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always the weaker side's rec- suggestion, mm. the one that uh, uh, cannot have its way and therefore it's looking for a compromise, but the other side, whether Palestinians then, Jews today were opposed to it. And finally, the third, uh, uh, or, or I should say the third option, which is the second one-state version, is a one-person, one-vote civic society. Mm-hmm. It's an even more difficult counterfactual because there are no historical antecedents. There are no blueprints that have been uh, offered. But if you uh, do a feasibility study using the tools of the social sciences, in other words, you ask what are the circumstances, the conditions that allow for the creation of a stable multi-ethnic state, you find that uh, many of those conditions are precisely the ones that would allow for the formation of a two-state solution. Mm. Federalism, for example. Okay? The question is how much res- redistributive justice would have to take place mm-hmm. in order to eradicate the impact of the occupation. Okay? If we leave the occupation in place, okay, then no one-state solution would lead to a peaceful um, outcome. Or a just outcome. Yes. So I would just to conclude, I would say you can't look at a two-state solution separately from a one-state solution. You have to examine them side by side to see the trade-offs of each one. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting point because, you know, so often, as you said, we've already uh, dismissed the two-state solution. I know that I've been arguing for a one-state solution for a very long time, and so I've already kind of given up on thinking about it. But some of the information that you've presented right now kind of uh, makes it possible to think of a way that in which the settlements are pulled back, that you know, two-state solutions can still be offered as um, political settlements, and they provide some sort of yes. justice and equity. Yes. Especially, you know, on the 50th anniversary of the occupation, we have to keep in mind the conspicuous unreality of permanent temporariness. Mm-hmm. The fact that settler colonialism is a historical historical anachronism. And, of course, along with the stalling of the colonization movement, demonstrate that this outcome is far from having been fully entrenched. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind, that you know this isn't a conflict 
or a situation, the occupation is not a situation that it necessarily has to be as permanent as we imagine it. On that note, yes. Yes. <laughs> so on that note, I think we should, uh, unfor- we'll have to come to a close. I highly recommend for those of you that are interested uh, in learning more, come to our podcast uh, website where you can find uh, a few references that uh, Gershon uh, will have for you. And you can also, of course, check out his new book on UC Press. It's called A Half Century of Occupation, Israel-Palestine and the World's Most Intractable Conflict. Uh, Thank you again, Gershon, for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. 